Broadcasting live from the KVXL studios at Liberty Baptist Church in Las Vegas. Freedom is never more than one generation away from extinction. The Frittle Show with Crystal Heath. I've said that we must be cautious in claiming God is on our side. I think the real question we must answer is, are we on His side? Faith, family, freedom. For me, it's very simple. I think we've got to, we've got to get the country back on the right track with the most inspiring agenda. A voice in the desert. Now, here's Crystal Heath. All right, folks. Happy Thursday, one and all. I'm Crystal Heath. You're listening to The Frittle Show on KVXL 101.1 FM Experience Liberty Radio from Liberty Baptist Church in Las Vegas. 9.30 and 11.15 Sunday morning are our service times if you would like to join us on Sunday morning, 6 p.m. Sunday evening. All right, since it's Thursday, it is time to jump into all of the news of the day. Of course, the president gave his State of the Union address earlier this week on Tuesday evening. We will break that down for you a little bit later on in the program. Got something really fun to talk about today as well. Don't usually talk about fun things on Thursdays necessarily, but uh, we will uh, wrap up the program with something I think you might find uh, really interesting, or at least is hope. Hopefully, hopefully I found it interesting and I was like, oh, this is really neat. I want to talk about this on Thursday's program. So we'll get to that at the end of the program. It's about one of my favorite writers, one of my favorite authors, if you will or if you won't. Either way, that's what it's about. Uh, but before we get into the State of the Union or uh, talking about one of my favorite authors, some really neat stuff about him. Uh, first off, we're going to just run through a couple things that are happening uh, culturally uh, and in uh, here and in here, no, culturally and politically was what my brain could not think of to come out of my mouth. Oh, my watch told me I just earned another hour toward my stand goal while sitting down. That's fantastic. All right. So, uh, we're going to start here locally and by locally, I mean in the United States and then we'll branch out into some global, uh, issues. New Jersey, New Jersey, New Jersey, New Jersey, what a as someone who grew up in Pennsylvania I, and has uh, relatives from New Jersey, uh, I can tell you that, uh, you know, when, um, oh my goodness, what's her name? Gracie Lou Freebush <laughs> represents New Jersey in that, um, in Miss Congeniality. And she's like, because oil and petrol refinery state wouldn't fit on a license plate. Yeah, New Jersey is just not... I don't know. It's kind of like the California of the East Coast, but it, you have to smash it together with New York for that to happen. But I feel like that's not really even fair to New York, though, because upstate New York is gorgeous. And uh, the heartland, if you will, of New York State is really very nice. But if you take New York City and New Jersey and put them together, they essentially become uh, the East Coast California. Uh, New Jersey is pretty much despised by many of its surrounding neighbors, except for those who work, say, in New York City. I personally, I don't have anything against New Jersey. Um, it's a fine place to visit, I guess. But you don't want to head over there, especially if you've been saving for a rainy day. Pun intended. If you live in New Jersey, you are already one of the highest taxed people in the entire country. You are paying taxes and you also can't pump your own fuel because you need someone to do that for you. But that's another story for another time. But now, 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 New Jersey uh, state government has a bill they are considering which would tax New Jersey residents and businesses when it rains. 
what is being affectionately called the rain tax. Yes, if you live in New Jersey, you may start paying extra taxes for rain. But don't worry, only, only if your property has a large paved surface. Which would basically be everyone that owns property. If you have a driveway or a parking lot or anything like that. If you have a large paved surface, probably a basketball court. uh, You now will have to pay a rain tax if this bill goes through. It's passed in the Senate uh, and the Assembly. It is headed to the governor's desk. Hopefully the governor will do something smart and not put a rain tax on his people, but most likely uh, he's going to do this. So a lot of states, okay, especially where it rains, I understand in Las Vegas we may not be able to wrap our heads around this quite as much. It does rain in Nevada, just not here. Let me clarify that. But many places where it rains regularly, uh, there are stormwater utilities that collect and filter runoffs from the storms. So the water, you know how we have like the big drainage, I don't know what you call them, tunnels, uh, tubes, I, the, the when you're driving along and if you're in a car, you got to slow way down because all of a sudden there's a huge dip in the road so that the water, when it does rain here, can flow through without flooding and stuff. So a lot of places where it rains a lot, they have... Uh, drain systems in place and uh, and water runoff setup stuff. Okay, apparently in New Jersey, the water runoff they never prepared for, and it just goes directly into their streams and rivers and bays, taking with it whatever it happens to pick up along the way, like lawn fertilizer or salt from people's driveways. And you're like, why do people have salt on their driveways? Well, again, this is one of the things we may not understand from living in the desert. But if you live in a place where it snows a lot, one of the ra- ways that you melt the ice and get rid of that uh, that driving hazard in your driveway or on the road is by putting down unsavory salt. It's kind of like what uh, Jesus was talking about when he said, if the salt has lost its savor, it is thenceforth good for nothing but to be cast out and to be trodden underfoot of men. Okay, you, you The salt makes, it, makes there more grip and traction on whatever uh, walking or driving way you might happen to be. So you've got people's lawn fertilizer, you've got the salts, and in a place like New Jersey, you've got a lot of salt in the winter. Then you have the melting snow and the rain and the sleet, and that is all just creating all this water, which is just flowing into wherever it wants to flow, because apparently in New Jersey there's no specific system uh, to deal with this. And New Jersey is worried that because much of their income is tourist-related to uh, to uh, their shoreline area, they want to stop some of the pollution and some of the runoff just going into uh, their rivers and their waterways. And the way they're going to do this, apparently, is by taxing cement and pavement and uh, and then using that to create some sort of system that would help reduce the flooding and the runoff caused by these storms. Now, that's a, that's a smart idea. However, New Jersey has so much money coming in, in tax income, that they shouldn't need to create another tax to put in place a system that most other states with this sort of issue have had in place for literally decades. This this shouldn't be something that requires its own tax. Like you shouldn't have to, you shouldn't get taxed for rain. It's just it's 
who came up with this is what I want to know. You couldn't even disguise it as something else. Make it like an environmental tax and stick it on people's trash bill. That's my favorite. What is it? Like on our on our republic services bills, on our u- utilities bills or whatever they are. However, they, they put the trash like on the same one as your sewer bill. I don't understand that. Why don't I get a separate bill for my trash than for my sewer? Also, why is there a graffiti charge and what are all the supplemental government taxes? What, what are those taxes doing? What is a supplemental tax? And a graffiti removal charge? Does that mean that I can call up whenever there's graffiti and be like, hey... I need to get that $8 of my graffiti removal uh, happening on the wall right across the street. Because, yeah. But I'm just saying, like, New Jersey, they could have just stuck it in somewhere with other stuff. And since it's New Jersey, no one may have noticed. (laughs) Instead, you create a bill to tax and, and have it get dubbed the rain tax. This is not acceptable. You know what else is not acceptable? Overpopulation. Or so the science people and population experts would have us believe. However, despite UN predictions on overpopulation, there is now a study, actually a book, claiming that global population will start to decline in 30 years and once it does it will never end and eventually the world will simply cease to exist because of underpopulation. There are currently 7.7 billion people living on our planet, and this is expected to reach 9 billion people by 2050, according to the UN. But a Canadian journalist and a political scientist have joined together to write a book saying that that's not the case. It's a book called Empty Planet, and it says that global population will start dropping in about 30 years, and once the decline begins, it will never regain speed, and we will just continue to die out. Young people will cease to exist, according to them, because people are going to simply stop having children. Now, I agree with them on on some respects. I think that there are vast portions of the world where you will see, and continue to see, I guess you should say, a decline in birth rates for various reasons, uh, not the least of which could be deemed selfishness. Uh, But that's another, again, another conversation for another time. Where I think they get it wrong is in failing to take into account uh, those who have large families based on their religious affiliations. As Islam continues its spread throughout the world, uh, they, they don't look at family size the same way that much of the rest of the world does. Uh, they are very much interested in having a very large family and very large families and then having their children have very large families. So I believe what you will see is a decline in birth rates among non-Muslims while at the same time seeing an increase in Muslim population in the world because they are going to continue to have large families, whereas the rest of the world population is going to continue to have two, maybe three children. If that, uh, less. I think the average now is like 1.7 or something, and that number is going to continue to decrease while the Muslim population will continue to have large families, and I think you can see where that will eventually uh, probably take us, if you will. But, uh, again... 
not enough time to get into all the questions of that today. We're already like very many minutes into the program and uh, haven't yet talked about the fact that the wall is being built. Now for all the hubbub about the wall and the lack of the wall and the shutdown and are we going to shut down again and, uh, and other things that we'll talk about in a few minutes when we talk about the State of the Union. But before we get to all of that, did you know that our government, your government, is preparing to begin construction of more border walls and fencing in the Rio Grande Valley in South Texas. Yeah, it's already begun, okay? U.S. Customs and Border Protection has heavy construction equipment on scene in the Rio Grande Valley. There's more than $600 million has been assigned uh, for 33 miles of new barriers in the Rio Grande. Now that 5.7 billion that Trump wants, that we're still working on. But Customs has decided to go ahead and get started with what they have, which I think is a brilliant idea. Do what you can, and then hopefully uh, we can get more as we go along. But right now, uh, what they're doing is they're creating, um, they're creating a uh, a they're like expanding along the river the cement barrier and then they're going to build fencing on top of uh, the cement barrier as the first step if you will in Trump's wall if you want to call it Trump's wall by the way there is already some uh, deterrence along parts of our border it's just been an issue of expansion that our government and by our government I mean the president and congress have been fighting over. That's what he needs the 5.7 billion for, so we can make it go the whole way. But there are parts that have a fence, and there is $600 million to cover 33 miles. That just seems like so little miles for so much money. But at least uh, something is getting done. Customs has already moved in their construction equipment and will begin working on that very soon. Okay. When we return, we will talk about the State of the Union address from earlier this week. And then to end out the program today, we have a really, I, I just think it's a fascinating, fun story about one of my favorite authors. So be sure to keep listening. This is KVXL 101.1 FM Experience Liberty Radio from Liberty Baptist Church in Las Vegas. All right, we are back. And as promised yesterday, my take on the State of the Union. My fellow Las Vegans, the State of Our Union is strong. Yes, now you know, we can move on. Just kidding. We will actually talk about the State of the Union itself. Uh, And by the State of the Union, I don't mean that the State of the Union is strong. I mean the President's State of the Union address. I gotta tell you, leading up to the State of the Union address, I was kind of like, yeah, I don't really, uh, I don't want to watch this right now. You know, it was a, it was my Tuesday evening. Tuesdays are like my Mondays because I'm not here on Mondays. And I just, I wasn't feeling it. You know, I was like, I don't really know if I want to watch an hour long uh, political speech. If I'm going to watch anything, I want to watch something that doesn't require my brain to think. Hogan's Heroes is a good option for that for me. Like, I I enjoy Hogan's Heroes. My brother brought me the entire series uh, for Christmas, and I'm only, like, in episode six. But, um, it's a good, it's a good, that's how I, like, that's how I relax. I don't, I don't watch the news to relax. I used to. I used to, but I I lost that ability uh, several years ago. So... (laughs) So I was just like, oh, I don't know about this. Like, it's just going to be same old, same old. 
And I wasn't, I'll be honest with you, I wasn't looking forward to it. And there was part of me that was like, you know what, if I didn't have to do radio and I hadn't already told everybody that I would talk about this on the radio, I may not even watch the State of the Union. And then I was like, well, that's ridiculous. You watch the State of the Union every year. Of course you're going to watch the State of the Union. Even if you say you're not going to, you're going to give in and you're going to watch it. So you might as well just watch it. And I was like, you know, I'm I was talking to myself. I was like, self, you're, you're right. I'm going to watch it anyway. So I might as well just enjoy it. So, you know, there's the usual entrance, applause. <laughs> there were some super petty Democrats. Like there is always a pettiness that happens from whichever side is not represented by the president that is speaking. Uh, but, there, I mean, there was some real pettiness, some real bitterness happening uh, as the president came in. Uh, as he introduced, uh, he introduced Melania, which I had a dream. This is random, but I had a dream that uh, I was hanging out with Melania and that she was super nice. I don't know where that came from. Uh, actually, we were at the State of the Union, come to think of it. And the president was there. And actually, wow, okay, it's all coming back to me now. There was a bunch of you that attend our Pastor Matt's uh, college and career class. You all got a picture with the president in my dream. So congratulations for that. Anyway, uh, so he introduces Melania. <laughs> so, some Democrats didn't even clap for the introduction of Melania. So you knew at that moment that this was going to be... Uh, this was going to be a doozy. Um, but, you know, I was like, okay, here we go. The president has arrived. It's going to be a huge speech and everything. And uh, I got to tell you, I was incredibly, thoroughly, ridiculously impressed with this speech. Now, that doesn't mean that I agreed with everything in it. I, I didn't agree uh, politically with everything in it, but the vast majority of it, uh, I not only agreed with, but I was like, wow, this is, this is so well presented. This is so pro-America without being nationalist. Uh, this is so, so good. I was, I gotta tell you, if you missed it, you missed out. I, it, <laughs> If not the best speech I've seen the president give, it's pretty close to it. It was good. I mean, and major kudos to his speechwriter. You know, some people don't like to think about that, but as someone who worked in the realms of the politicals, uh, the president uh, didn't write that himself. Okay, he he probably gave some. Uh, he would have given like themes and what he wanted to go, where he wanted to go. But uh, somebody, some some very smart people wrote that for him, and they did an absolutely fantastic job. But all right, let's break it down for you. Uh, my favorite moments, some of my favorite themes, uh, we'll go over, and then uh, and then we'll get to as promised some fun stuff about one of my favorite authors. But first, to say the union. Okay, so the president comes in. He opens up uh, really strong. His opening uh, theme was all about unity and coming together and America. Oorah, uh, America. He introduced some American heroes. We have a standing ovation. Buzz Aldrin was in the house, uh, literally. Um, and, uh, and he started out really strong. His, one of his opening lines was, The agenda we'll lay out this evening is not a Republican idea or a Democrat agenda, or, or not a Republican agenda or a Democrat agenda. It's an American agenda, which I thought was just a brilliant start. That's great. Um, he said, Victory is not winning for our party, victory is winning for our country. Again, really good. Democrats clapping, Democrats clap for uh, heroes. Uh, we hear about 
uh, some World War II heroes that are sitting with uh, Melania in the in the balcony. Um, and the president uh, opens up with this really just a strong, strong uh, theme of unity. He said, we can bridge all divisions, heal all wounds, and unlock the extraordinary promise of America's future. He said, we can make our communities safer, our families stronger, our culture richer, our faith deeper, and our middle class bigger and more prosperous than ever before. Uh, and he said, uh, he's, he went on to talk about how, and I think one of the best lines of the night, he asked uh, Congress to choose. He said, like, we need to choose uh, between greatness or gridlock, between results or resistance. That's, a, that's just a brilliant line. Like, whoever wrote that, because you know how the detractors call themselves the resistance. So he's, it's amazing. Uh, vision or vengeance, incredible progress or pointless destruction. And they said, tonight I ask you to choose greatness. And it was just like, whoa, where did this speech come from? This is so good. Like within the first few minutes, I was like, what is happening here? There was only one line of his speech that I really didn't understand. Actually, it may have been two lines where he talked about investigations and war. Uh, seemingly to be pointing to the Russian collusion issue, but it didn't even like it didn't even make sense to me. But anyway, uh, he went on from there. He talked about uh, the economy. He talked about jobs. Uh, he talked about record low unemployment for uh, our African American community. And uh, by the way, Democrats didn't clap for record low unemployment for African Americans, including Nancy Pelosi. That is not uh, choosing greatness. He talked about the record-breaking cut of regulations uh, has happened under his administration. <laughs> and then gave the, what should be or could be the opening line, members of Congress, the state of our union is strong. Now, throughout his opening, there would be a Democrat here or there that almost all of them would sit down, but the lone Democrat would stand up and clap, and you just felt for that person and there would be the sitting down and then he would say another line and they would stand up and clap and then there would be the sitting down and then they would stand up and clap and then there would be the sitting down and they would stand up and clap the speech was only supposed to be about an hour I think actually a little bit under an hour and went for like an hour and 22 minutes I believe so much clapping are you tired of all the winning yet like that's why there's so much clapping because there was all the winning and then the president's going through the Democrats, they didn't clap for veterans. They didn't clap for... Uh, Trump said that uh, together we would put drug traffickers and cartels out of business. And Democrats didn't clap. It's just mind-boggling to me sometimes. Like, I get that you're not going to clap for everything he says. Sure, that okay. But you're not going to clap for our veterans? You're not going to clap for putting drug cartels out of business? You're not going to clap for record low African-American unemployment? Like... These are things that, th these are not political issues. These are good things for America. It's just not, it's a bad show. It's a bad show. It's a jolly bad show if you don't clap for these things. And then in between all of this, okay, so let me lay the stage for you. You've got Republicans on one side, Democrats on the other side. Uh, the Democrat uh, women's delegation was all wearing white. Um, I'm not sure who is getting married Tuesday evening, but I hope they didn't invite any of the Democratic ladies uh, to their wedding because that would not have been uh, kosher. Um, but the president went through. He talked about uh, he talked about the First Step Act. He talked about prison reform uh, that is being 
uh, that is being done through his administration. He said that America is a nation that believes in redemption. I mean, throughout just these themes of of hope and encouragement and good news, like it was just it was so good. And uh, and so that's where he the whole beginning of the of the speech was just very hopeful, uh, very much a message of unity and progress. And it was just it was really, really good. Then he went there. He started talking about the immigration issue. He said that tolerance for illegal immigration is not compassionate. It is actually very cruel. And then he went into uh, some of the actual statistics and facts of what happens uh, to women and children and how they are used and abused uh, in these migrant caravans. And he said the lawless state of our southern border is a threat uh, to all Americans. Um, and uh, he, he brought in, he had, uh, he had families there. He had a family there from Reno uh, whose uh, parent, grandparent had been killed uh, by illegal, uh, Ill- illegal aliens. He, uh, he had an ICE enforcement agent there, said that we would never abolish ICE and that we will always support the brave uh, men and women of law enforcement. And then, uh, of course, he brought up the wall. And he said, I will get it built. Like this was a huge line for the president in his speech. And he said, walls work and walls save lives. Uh, then it was back to uh, the uh, back to the things that have been accomplished uh, by his administration. And uh, he talked about how the f- and all this time, right, all this time, we talk about all this amazingly good stuff. And for the entirety of it, Democrats are just sitting down, not clapping. There's some here and there, but for the most part, there's no clapping, particularly among the women in white. No clapping, like no clapping. And then the president mentions that uh, of the jobs created last year by his administration uh, in this country, 58% of those jobs were filled by women. And you would have thought that a Pentecostal praise service broke out in the halls of Congress as all those women in white. I mean, it was like a choir standing and they're clapping and they're cheering and they're hooting and they're hollering. There are literally women raising their hands in praises. I'm not kidding. It was it was one of the funniest things I've ever seen. And I think it amused the president as well. One, because he got a little smirk on his face. And two, because you can just tell when something amuses the president. And then as they're going to sit down, he was like, oh, no, don't sit yet. You're going to like this. And then <laughs> and then he mentions that there are now more women in Congress than ever before. And the praise service erupts again. Like they're clapping. They're hooting. They're hollering. They're raising their hands. And, uh, and there you go. Huh. <sighs> It was honestly more entertaining, I think, than the Super Bowl. Like, it was good. It was just, it was good. The president did well. He looked presidential. He sounded presidential. I Personally, I thought it was a great night for the president. I thought that he did phenomenal. And uh, I don't say that lightly by any means. Nancy Pelosi, on the other hand, looked terrible. Oh, but before I get to her, Trump and Pence, power ties really nice like the president's tie i'm sure it was a trump tie which is huge and uh it was it was it was great it was a very nice red it was a little bit crooked and so tie was trending in the united states for a while on twitter uh but he had the red tie pence had the blue tie they offset very very nicely i thought and i'm just a little aside but nancy pelosi not only did she not clap so much 
But she sat there. So the president, when he comes in to give his State of the Union, he gives a, a written copy of the speech to the vice president and to the Speaker of the House. And uh, she would just sit there, like, looking through his speech, visibly, like, looking through his speech behind him. I've never seen anything like it, like, so disrespectful. Or was there so much clapping because there was so much winning that you couldn't hear what he was saying, so you had to read it? Like, that just didn't make any sense to me. Just stop it. Put down the papers. And then when she would stand up to clap, she'd stand up to clap, and then she'd pick up the papers and start looking through them, and then appear to forget that everyone had already sat down, and the president was again speaking, so you should sit down too. Sit down. The president also talked about uh, school choice. He introduced his many guests. Uh, we talked about uh, the guests that he would have earlier this week, so I'm not going to get into that again for the sake of time. But uh, in my opinion, who the president brings as his guest is one of the best parts, if not the best part, of any, uh, any State of the Union address. But it was not... Actually, it was the best. It was, it was just... It was good. But I think the best moments... There were two best moments for me of this State of the Union. The first, and I, I could not believe uh, that he brought this topic uh, to light, but I was so impressed and so encouraged that he did. Um, he just lit into, well not lit into, but he completely called out the New York legislature and Virginia's Governor Northam for their horrific support of infanticide that we saw happening, or apparent support of infanticide, I guess I should say, as an objective reporter, uh, last week. I could not believe it. Like, he, he just spelled it out and was like, the governor says he would allow a baby born alive to die. Like, he, 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 he just laid it out. And he laid it out beautifully, and he called for legislation to bring an end to late-term abortion. It was amazing. It was fantastic. I have never uh, heard anything like that from any president ever. I, I, it, was, it was great. He said, let us work together to build a culture that cherishes innocent life. And he said, all children, born and unborn, are made in the image, or are made in the holy image of God. Like, it was, it was amazing. And I think that in that moment, we were reminded that President Trump, for all his faults, and there are many, but he has been the most president, the most, the most president, no, the most passionate president uh, when it comes to talking about and championing the cause of the unborn. He just has. Um, and he transitioned from there to socialism. So this was the two best moments of the speech, I think two most powerful. Uh, first, he takes on... Uh, the the abortion issue and then he went into socialism uh and he said uh you know americans were born free we will remain free he said that uh, america will never be a socialist country he talked about how it destroyed venezuela and impressively enough and kudos to nancy pelosi for this when he said that uh, america would never be a socialist country both the vice president and nancy pelosi stood and clapped as did many democrats uh some of course did not um, and then he went into uh, coupling with the with the socialism. He talked about um, uh, Jerusalem, and uh, and then transitioned from there to uh, introducing a, a guy 
uh, named Judah Samet, a member of the Tree of Life Synagogue in Pittsburgh, where there was that horrific shooting. Uh, this guy survived the shooting. He also survived the Holocaust, and he was there. Uh, they told his story. It was so moving. It was so powerful. They talked about how, uh, as his family was being transported by the Nazis, I think, to Poland, uh, that the train stopped, and they prepared for the worst because they thought they were going to you know, kill them all. But instead, as the train doors were opening, what they heard was, it's the Americans, it's the Americans. And it was just such a moving moment of, wow, you know, this is what Americans have done. This is what Americans can do. And it was this guy's birthday. And, uh, and then a spontaneous rendition of Happy Birthday to You uh, rang out in the halls of Congress uh, as, as the members of the U.S. Congress sang Happy Birthday uh, to this 81 year old man and it was just like I've never teared up I don't think during a state of the union before but it was so precious so priceless if you miss that moment I don't think there's ever been a better moment in any state of the union address uh than than that moment uh when the president tells this man's story and then uh and then congress responds in just this really beautiful act of kindness it was it was so touching so you know, American, uh, American greatness. This was a speech full of, of promoting our heroes, full of patriotism without being nationalistic, which I think was a, was a fine line, and he walked it so, so well. Uh, it talked about uh, morals and, and right living and the goodness of America and the greatness of America, but in a way that was uplifting and not in an in-your-face kind of way. I just, I thought this speech was phenomenal and major kudos to the president for this one and for those uh, speechwriters who put this together. If you missed it, you should go. I don't think I've ever told anyone this before. Um, I've posted highlights of uh, highlights of different State of the Union addresses, but I've never been like, hey, this is one that you should go and watch in its entirety. But uh, especially if you can find a version of it that doesn't include all the clapping, so you can just get through it, or if you want to see, you know, the dynamics of the clapping. Either way, though, this one, if nothing else, at least go find, uh, it would be towards the end of the speech. So if you, even if you don't watch the entire speech, start it like 40 minutes in, listen to him talk about the, the pro-life issues, listen to him talk about socialism and uh, and how it won't be in America, and listen to him tell the story of Judah Samet. I really good. I don't know that there's anything else that I can add to that except to say, wow, kudos, great job uh, to the president and to his team uh, for this one. All right, so there you have it. My take on the State of the Union, the play-by-play as I saw it. And now we're going to take a break. When we return, as promised, I will tell you about one of my favorite authors and why we're talking about him today. Stay with us. All right, so usually on Thursdays we talk about only political stuff. We just stick with all of the politics. But today, today I wanted to change things up a little bit because today is the birthday of the literary great Charles Dickens, who was born in 1812, almost 200 years ago. That is just, wait, no, more than 200 years ago. I was like, wow, it's almost 2012. <sighs> Hashtag sad, Crystal, no. 207. 
207 years old. 207 years ago, Charles Dickens was born. And he added 247 new words, or at least usages of words, uh, or uh, rather a combination thereof, to the English language. One man, 247 words, or word usages, to the English language. One of the words, or phrases, or whatever you might call this, (laughs) that he added, butterfingers. You're such a butterfingers. Or like, you know, when you drop a pass, you're a butterfingers. Or it's that thing that you eat, butterfinger. But butterfingers was a term created by the great Charles Dickens. Now, here's what I love about Charles Dickens. Aside from his fantastic writing, which if you haven't read the works of Charles Dickens, you should. He's probably best known uh, for his uh, A Christmas Carol because it's been made into like five million different versions of a movie. But uh, Charles Dickens, although he wanted to be popular, although, you know, of course he wanted to make money with his writing, he wrote with one purpose and one goal, and he said this over and over again in his life, that he wanted his novels to be parables or stories that would emphasize the teachings of Jesus Christ and the and the life of the New Testament. He believed that he had a responsibility to encourage his readers to, to have and lead a moral life, and he wanted to demonstrate through his books that Christianity was important to their own belief, to our beliefs, and to our actions. So he wrote a note to his friend, the Reverend D. McRae, and he said, quote, with a deep sense of my great responsibility always upon me when I exercise my art, one of my most constant and most earnest endeavors has been to exhibit in all my good people some faint reflections of the teachings of our great master, and unsentageously to lead the reader up to those teachings as the great source of moral goodness. All my strongest illustrations are derived from the New Testament. All my social abuses are shown as departures from its spirit. All my good people are humble, charitable, faithful, and forgiving. Over and over again, I claim them and express words as disciples of the founder of our religion. Think about that. Think about that statement. One of the greatest authors of all time. One of the authors still most heralded today. Wrote specifically to encourage a Christian lifestyle in his readers. He said all his strongest illustrations come from the New Testament. All of the social abuses in his works he puts there to show as what happens when you depart from the teachings of Jesus. All of the people that he says that are good in my books are charitable and faithful and forgiving. They demonstrate the teachings of Christ over and over again. I love this about Charles Dickens, and I've known this about him for a long time. I didn't know today was his birthday, though, and when I found out that it was, I thought, you know what, we don't talk a lot about good or fun or encouraging things necessarily on Thursdays because we're so uh, wrapped up in looking at the politics of everything and the cultural impacts of everything. But talk about, if you want to see real cultural impact, Charles Dickens had cultural impact. Charles Dickens continues to have impact. America Magazine uh, had a fantastic article about him. Uh, that they published 
over a decade ago, but it's a fantastic one. It's called No Scrooge He, The Christianity of Charles Dickens. And they write, arguably the most beloved novelist of all time, Dickens is best known for A Christmas Carol. In his tale of Scrooge's conversion from selfishness to selflessness, Dickens succeeded in calling attention to what are regarded as common Christian themes centering on redemption and charity. What makes Scrooge such a wonderful character, in spite of his reputation as greedy and uncaring, is that he is really a Dickensian everyman. He is the representation of all human beings who are seeking to find the secret of what makes life meaningful. Scrooge asks the same questions all human beings ask. How does one find salvation? Dickens' own view of Scrooge's redemption becomes evident at the end of the novel. Unlike the unredeemed Scrooge of the beginning of the story, described as a squeezing, wrenching, grasping, scraping, clutching, covetous old sinner, the redeemed Scrooge is a changed person. As it tells us in A Christmas Carol, he went to church and walked about the streets and watched the people hurrying to and fro and patted children on the head and questioned beggars and looked into the kitchens of houses and up to the windows and found that everything could yield him pleasure. He had never dreamed that any walk, that anything could give him so much happiness. The redeemed Scrooge then is fully aware of the true meaning of the Christmas season, remembering the birth of Christ and unselfishly helping others. Our final view of Scrooge reinforces the sentiment that all things are possible at this magical time of year. It was always said of him, Dickens tells us, that he knew how to keep Christmas well. May that truly be said of us and all of us. And so, as Tiny Tim observed, God bless us, everyone. With the conversion of Scrooge, Dickens illustrates that his readers, too, can also be converted from a harsh, complacent, selfish worldview to one in which love, hope, and charity are possible. Now, you can read all about Dickens on America Magazine, or you can read about him in other uh, works, and there will be some people who will say, well, Dickens actually wasn't a Christian. He didn't uh, didn't, uh, espouse any uh, religious affiliation. Well, we do know uh, from Dickens' own writings and letters and speeches that he didn't like dogma, uh, and uh, he, he didn't like, he wasn't a big one for organized religion necessarily and in many ways you know he would have been different from many of you who would be listening what we do know is that for charles dickens christianity was something personal christianity was something that changed lives christianity uh, was something that emphasized morality and love christianity uh, was something that made the world a better place and he was so Uh, convinced of this, that he left instructions to his children to guide themselves, quote, guide themselves by the teachings of the New Testament in its broad spirit and to put no faith in any man's narrow construction of its letter here or there. So while some would argue that Dickens wasn't a Christian based on his rejection of organized religion, I would argue that based on his, uh, on his, on on his letters and writings to his to his children and to different things that what uh, what he has to say about the New Testament and different things. Obviously, no one knows uh, his heart. We don't know if he accepted uh, Jesus as his savior. As far as I know, we don't have writings about that specifically. But Dickens wrote this of his own children. He said, I most strongly and affectionately impress upon you the priceless value of the New Testament and the study of that book as the one unfailing guide in life. He also wrote prayers for his children. 
He wrote, Hear what our Lord Jesus Christ taught to his disciples and to us, and what we should remember every day of our lives, to love the Lord our God with all our heart and with all our mind and with all our soul and with all our strength, to love our neighbors as ourselves, to do unto other people as we would have them do unto us, and to be charitable and gentle to all. There is no other commandment, our Lord Jesus Christ said, greater than these. So some would argue that Dickens wasn't a Christian because he rejected organized religion. I would argue that Dickens had a very firm grasp on Christianity and most likely was a Christian. Though, as I said, no one uh, can know his heart. But, and, and, and his theology would be somewhat different than ours, obviously. I think one of the best of Dickens' works is one which very few people know about. While there are Christian ski, um, yeah, I can't talk. There, there's a Christianity woven throughout each one of his novels, and Dickens himself said that's his purpose, and that's where he bases all of his best stories are based on the teachings of the New Testament, and and or show the rejection of what happens, or the the results of what happens rather when you reject the teachings of Jesus and the teachings of the New Testament, and you have you have. Uh, uh, all throughout. I mean, A Tale of Two Cities, where you have one person dying in the place uh, of another. And I apologize. If you've never read the book, one of my most favorite books, uh, read A Tale of Two Cities. So good. Uh, in David Copperfield, we see the forgiveness of Steerforth, who I won't, uh, I won't tell you about that situation either. And then all throughout A Christmas Carol, we find, we find forgiveness and, and love and the, the changing of someone from selfish to selfless. But perhaps the best... Uh, work of Charles Dickens to this regard is one which most people aren't even aware of. It's called The Life of Our Lord. It was what Charles Dickens called an easy version of the Gospels. And not easy like easy believism. Easy in that he wrote it uh, for his children. And he wrote it to reflect what he called real Christianity. By that he meant uh, Christian virtues like trust and kindness and forgiveness. The Life of Our Lord is what Dickens wanted his children to know. He wanted his children to know Jesus as a kind and loving uh, Savior. Of Jesus, he writes, There was no one who ever lived who was so good, so kind, so gentle, and so sorry for all the people who did wrong or were in any way ill or miserable as he was. And again, his theology would be different than ours. If you, if you read the life of our Lord specifically, you can see that. It, it takes a, a form of some different themes out of other, uh, other groups than where we would be. But at the core of what Dickens did in his cultural impact, what he wanted to do, what he set out to do, what he spent his life doing, was to write in such a way that his readers would be encouraged to emulate the life and teachings of Jesus Christ. That, to me, is impact. Not that Charles Dickens wrote many novels and that they're famous even today and that they've been made into movies. No, but that the reason that Dickens is so successful and the reason that his stories live on today and the reason they've been made into movies is because the foundation of his stories is the foundation of, look, this is what good is. This is what Christianity teaches. And if you live this way, 
good happens. And if you reject morality, if you reject Judeo-Christian values, these are the consequences of that rejection. At the end of his book, The Life of Our Lord, Charles Dickens wrote this. He said, Remember, it is Christianity to do good always, even to those who do evil to us. It is Christianity to love our neighbors as ourselves and to do to all men as we would have them do to us. It is Christianity to be gentle, merciful, and forgiving and to keep those qualities in our own hearts. So now you know a little bit more about Charles Dickens, who was born on this day 207 years ago. Man added 247 new words or uses of words to the English language. An incredible author, incredible man, who wrote specifically so that his audience would seek to emulate the teachings of Jesus in the New Testament. It's pretty cool, huh? You know what else is pretty cool? Fridays on KBXL 101.1 FM because Friday is when we have trivia and I give things away. So be sure to tune in tomorrow, same time, same place, kbxl101.com. You can stream us online if you're not here in Las Vegas. You can also catch uh, past episodes of this program on iTunes and SoundCloud. But you won't find Friday's editions of the program on iTunes or SoundCloud. You have to listen live, either here in Las Vegas on 101.1 FM or on our stream at kbxl101.com. And tomorrow, since it's Friday, there will be trivia, there will be giveaways, it will be epic, there will be no politics. It's just a whole lot of fun around here on Friday, so be sure to tune in again tomorrow for that. Thanks so much for being with us. I'm out of time for today's show. Hope you enjoyed it. If you have thoughts on the State of the Union or rain taxes or Charles Dickens, you can send those to me on Facebook or Twitter. Just look up The Friddle and that's me and then we can interact there. Hope to see you then and I hope to see you at church on Sunday, 9.30 and 11.15 Sunday morning, 6 p.m. Sunday evening. Have a great day, everyone.